Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 348 of Forgotten Classics, where we will finish the epic story unfolding in front of us on New Texas in Lone Star Planet. I did want to mention first, though, I don't have a podcast highlight or a new movie to tell you about, but I did come out with a new book, and I didn't think to bring it up here right away because it is, as my previous book, Happy Catholic, was Christian-oriented, and we just don't talk about that stuff much here. But if anybody's interested, it's called Seeking Jesus in Everyday Life, Prayers and Reflections for Getting Closer. I have a post that is right before this one on the blog, but you can also just look for it at Amazon if you want to see reviews or read or hear parts of interviews I've done. If you look at nigglepublishing.com, and that's N-I-G-G-L-E publishing.com, you will find a page for the book. I did self-publish. All the publishers I went to said, wow, we love this, but if you could only write Happy Catholic 2. And I was like, I'm sorry, did you not read the book? (laughs) It's kind of like that, just with a very specific prayer orientation. So this book is based on prayers and reflections that I myself have been using for two or three years in my own personal goal. And you can read more about that in the excerpt or hear about it in the interviews or read about it if you're interested. So as I say, I wanted to bring it up in case it would be to taste. And I definitely have to thank Heather Ordover, who is a Jewish lady, as anybody who listens to Craft Lit very much knows. But she is such a good friend and such a nice person that she did a giveaway of seeking Jesus in everyday life. So I really appreciate it, and of course, we all know she's the best anyway. If you're not listening to Craft Lit, you're missing out on some great stuff. So definitely check that out. So I guess I did have a little bit of a podcast highlight, though any regular listeners know I'm always pushing Craft Lit. It's the best. But back to New Texas. That's what we're all really here for. Can Ambassador Silk link the Bonnies? to the upcoming Zgruff, if that's how you say it, invasion. If indeed there will be an invasion, I feel like we should trust him, as I've said before. But the trial setting is very interesting, and I think what you're going to find most interesting, or what I found most interesting, in addition to how this plot plays out, is... What we see of the character development of the ambassador, Stephen Silk, our hero, as he goes through these last two chapters, you see how quickly he's adapted, how quick he is on his feet, how well he understands all the people around him and how to achieve his goals. I really enjoyed that part of it. Now, granted, I've heard this book twice now, so I'm a little ahead of you on that. Just keep your eyes open. And now, let's get going, partners. Dive in. Lone Star Planet by H. Beam Piper and John J. McGuire. Read for you by Mark Douglas Nelson. 
This here LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 10 The next morning, the third of the trial, opened with the defense witnesses, character witnesses for the three killers, and witnesses to the political iniquities of Silas Cumshaw. Neither Goodham nor I bothered to cross-examine the former. I couldn't see how any lawyer as shrewd as Sidney had shown himself to be would even dream of getting such an array of thugs, cutthroats, sluts, and slatterns into court as character witnesses for anybody. The latter, on the other hand, we went after unmercifully, revealing, under their enmity for Cumshaw, a small, hardcore of bigoted xenophobia and selfish fear. Goodham did a beautiful job on that. He seemed able, at a glance, to divine exactly what each witness's motivation was, and able to make him or her betray that motivation in its least admirable terms. Finally, the defense rested, about a quarter hour before noon. I rose and addressed the court. Your Honor, while both the prosecution and the defense have done an admirable job in bringing out the essential facts of how my predecessor met his death, there are many features about this case which are far from clear to me. They will be even less clear to my government, which is composed of men who have never set foot on this planet. For this reason I wish to call, or recall, certain witnesses to clarify these points. Sidney, who had begun shouting objections as soon as I had gotten to my feet, finally managed to get himself recognized by the court. "'This Solar League ambassador, Your Honor, is simply trying to use the courts of the planet of New Texas as a sounding board for his imperialistic government's propaganda.' "'You may reassure yourself, Mr. Sidney,' Judge Nelson said. "'This court will not allow itself to be improperly used, or improperly swayed, by the ambassador of the Solar League. This court is interested only in determining the facts regarding the case before it. You may call your witnesses, Mr. Ambassador.' He glanced at his watch. "'Court will now recess for an hour and a half. Can you have them here by 1330?' I assured him I could, after glancing across the room at Ranger Captain Nelson and catching his nod. My first witness that afternoon was Thrombley. After the formalities of getting his name and connection with the Solar League Embassy on the record, I asked him, "'Mr. Thrombley, did you, on the morning of April 22nd, receive a call from the Hickok Ranch for Mr. Cumshaw?' "'Yes, indeed, Mr. Ambassador. The call was from Mr. Longfellow, Colonel Hickok's butler.' He asked if Mr. Cumshaw were available. It happened that Mr. Cumshaw was in the same room with me, and he came directly to the screen. Then Colonel Hickok appeared in the screen, and inquired if Mr. Cumshaw could come out to the ranch for the day. He said something about super-dove shooting. "'You heard Mr. Cumshaw tell Colonel Hickok that he would be out at the ranch at about ten-thirty? Thrombley said he had. "'And to your knowledge, did anybody else at the Embassy hear that?' "'Oh, no, sir. We were in the ambassador's private office, and the screen there is tap-proof.' "'And what other calls did you receive, prior to Mr. Cumshaw's death?' "'About fifteen minutes after Mr. Cumshaw had left, the Zisroff ambassador called, about a personal matter. As he was most anxious to contact Mr. Cumshaw, I told him where he had gone.' "'Then, to your knowledge, outside of yourself, 
Colonel Hickok and his butler. The Zisroff ambassador was the only person who could have known that Mr. Cumshaw's car would be landing on Colonel Hickok's drive at or about ten-thirty. Is that correct? Yes. Plus anybody whom the Zisroff ambassador might have told. Exactly. I pounced. Then I turned and gave the three Bonnie brothers a sweeping glance. Plus anybody the Zisroff ambassador might have told. That's all. Your witness, Mr. Sidney. Sidney got up, started toward the witness stand, and then thought the better of it. No questions, he said. The next witness was a Mr. James Finnegan. He was identified as a cashier of the Crooked Creek National Bank. I asked him if Kettlebelly Sam Bonney did business at his bank. He said yes. Anything unusual about Mayor Bonney's account? I asked. Well, it's been unusually active lately. Ordinarily, he carries around two, three thousand pesos. But about the first of April, that took a big jump. Quite a big jump. Two hundred and fifty thousand pesos, all in a lump. When did Kettlebelly Sam deposit this large sum? I asked. He didn't. The money came to us in a cashier's check on the Rancher's Trust Company of New Austin, with an anonymous letter asking that it be deposited to Mayor Bonney's account. The letter was typed on a sheet of yellow paper in basic English. "'Do you have that letter now?' I asked. "'No, I don't. After we'd recorded the new balance, Kettlebelly came storming in, raising hell because we'd recorded it.' He told me that if we ever got another deposit like that, we were to turn it over to him in cash. Then he wanted to see the letter, and when I gave it to him, he took it over to a telescreen booth and drew the curtains. I got a little busy with some other matters, and the next time I looked, Kettlebelly was gone and some girl was using the booth. That's very interesting, Mr. Finnegan. Was that the last of your unusual business with Mayor Bonney? Oh, no. Then, about two weeks before Mr. Cumshaw was killed, Kettlebelly came in and wanted fifty thousand pesos, in a big hurry, in small bills. I gave it to him, and he grabbed at the money like a starved dog at a bone, and upset a bottle of red perma-ink, the sort we used to refill our bank seals. Three of the bills got splashed. I offered to exchange them, but he said, hell with it, I'm in a hurry, and went out. The next day, Switchblade Joe Bonney came in to make payment on a note we were holding on him. He used those three bills in the payment. Then, about a week ago, there was another cashier's check came in for Kettlebelly. This time there was no letter, just one of our regular deposit slips. No name of depositor. I held the check and gave it to Kettlebelly. I remember when it came in. I said to one of the clerks, well, I wonder who's going to get bumped off this time, and sure enough, Sidney's yell of objection was all his previous objections gathered into one. You say the letter accompanying the first deposit, the one in basic English, was apparently taken away by Kettlebelly Sam Bonney. If you saw another letter of the same sort, would you be able to say whether or not it might be like the one you mentioned? Sidney vociferating more objections. I was trying to get expert testimony without previous qualification. "'Not at all, Mr. Sidney,' Judge Nelson ruled. "'Mr. Silk has merely asked if Mr. Finnegan could say whether one document bore any resemblance to another.' 
I asked permission to have another witness sworn in while Finnegan was still on the stand, and called in a Mr. Boone, the cashier of the Packers and Brokers Trust Company of New Austin. He had with him a letter, typed on yellow paper, which he said had accompanied an anonymous deposit of two hundred thousand pesos. Mr. Finnegan said that it was exactly like the one he had received, in typing, grammar, and wording, all but the name of the person to whose account the money was to be deposited. "'And whose account received this anonymous benefaction, Mr. Boone?' I asked. "'The account,' Boone replied, "'of Mr. Clement Sidney.' I was surprised that Judge Nelson didn't break the handle of his gavel after that. Finally, after a couple of threats to clear the court, order was restored. Mr. Sidney had no questions to ask this time, either. The bailiff looked at the next slip of paper I gave him, frowned over it, and finally asked the court for assistance. "'I can't pronounce this here thing at all,' he complained. One of the judges finally got out a mouthful of growls and yaps, and gave it to the clerk of the court to copy into the record. The next witness was a Zasroff, and in the new Texas garb he was wearing, he was something to open my eyes, even after years on the hooligan diplomats. After he took the stand, the clerk of the court looked at him blankly for a moment. Then he turned to Judge Nelson. "'Your Honor, how am I going to go about swearing him in?' he asked. "'What does a Zasroff swear by that's binding?' The President Judge frowned for a moment. "'Does anybody here know basic well enough to translate the oath?' he asked. "'I think I can,' I offered. "'I spent a great many years in our consular service before I was sent here. We use basic with a great many alien peoples.' "'Administer the oath, then,' Nelson told me. "'Put up right hand,' I told the Zasroff. "'Do you truly say, in front of a great one who made all worlds, who has knowledge of what is in the hearts of all persons, that what you will say here will be true, all true, and not anything that is not true, and will you so say again at a time when all worlds end? Do you so truly say?' "'Yes, I so truly say.' "'Say your name.' "'Pubamega, Kovotomek, Chichichi.' "'What is your business?' "'I put things made of cloth into this world.' and I take meat out of this world. Where do you have your house? Here, in New Austin, over my house of business, on Coronado Street. What people do you see in this place that you have made business with? Pupamegal Kovutumek Chichichi pointed a three-fingered hand at the Bonnie brothers. What business did you make with them? I gave them money for a machine which goes on the ground and goes in the air very fast, to take persons and things about. "'Is that the thing you gave them for money?' I asked, pointing at the exhibit air-car. "'Yes, but it was new then. It has been made broken by things from guns now.' "'What money did they give you for the machine?' One hundred pesos.' That started another uproar. There wasn't a soul in that courtroom who didn't know that five thousand pesos would have been a giveaway bargain price for that car." "'Mr. Ambassador,' one of the associate judges interrupted, "'I used to be in the used car business. Am I expected to believe that this, this being, sold that air car for a hundred pesos?' 
"'There's a notarized copy of the bill of sale from the office of the Vehicles Registration Bureau,' I said. "'I introduce it as evidence.' There was a disturbance at the back of the room, and then the Zesroff ambassador, Gugelafra de Stapatan Vuvuvu, came stalking down the aisle, followed by a couple of rangers and two of his attachés. He came forward and addressed the court. "'May you be happy, sir, but I am in here so quickly, not because I have desired to make noise, but because it is only short time since it got in my knowledge that one of my persons is in this place. I am here to be of help to him that he not get in trouble, and to be of help to you. The name for what I am to do in this place is not part of my knowledge. Please say it for me.' "'You are a friend of the court,' Judge Nelson told him, "'and amicus curiae. You make me happy. Please go on. I have no desire to put stop to what you do in this place." "'From what person did you get this machine that you gave to these persons for one hundred pesos?' I asked. Gugelafer immediately began barking and snarling and yelping at my witness. The dry-goods importer looked startled, and Judge Nelson banged with his gavel. "'That's enough of that. There'll be nothing spoken in this court but English, except through an interpreter.' Yo, I am sad that what I did was not right," the Zesroff ambassador replied contritely. But my person here has not as part of his knowledge that you will make him say what may put him in trouble." Nelson nodded in agreement. You are right. This person who is here has no need to make answer to any question if it may put him in trouble or make him seem less than he is. I will not make answer, the witness said. No further questions. I turned to Goodham and then to Sidney. They had no questions either. I handed another slip of paper to the bailiff, and another Zesroff, named Babark Jonyekyeg Kikiki, took the stand. He put into this world things for small persons to make amusement with. He took out of this world meat and leather. He had his house of business in New Austin and he pointed out the three bonnies as persons in this place that he saw that he had seen before. "'And what business did you make with them?' I asked. "'I gave them for money, a gun which sends out things of twenty millimeters very fast, to make death or hurt come to men and animals, and does destruction to machines and things.' "'Is this the gun?' I showed it to him. "'It could be. The gun was made in my world.' Many guns like it are made there. I am certain that this is the very gun." I had a notarized copy of a customs house bill in which the gun was described and specified by serial number. I introduced it as evidence. "'How much money did these three persons give you for this gun?' I asked. Five pesos. The customs appraisal on this gun is six hundred pesos,' I mentioned. Immediately, Ambassador Vuvuvu was on his feet. "'My person here has not part of his knowledge that he may put himself in trouble by what he says to answer these questions.' That put a stop to that. Brark Jonyakyeg Kokiki immediately took refuge in refusal to answer on grounds of self-incrimination. "'That is all, Your Honor,' I said. "'And now,' I continued, when the witness had left the stand, I have something further to present to the court, something both as amicus curiae and as ambassador of the Solar League. This court cannot convict the three men who are here on trial. 
These men should have never been brought to trial in this court. It has no jurisdiction over this case. This was a simple case of first-degree murder, by hired assassins, committed against the ambassador of one government at the instigation of another, not an act of political protest within the meaning of new Texan law. There was a brief silence. Both the court and the spectators were stunned, and most stunned of all were the three Bonnie brothers, who had been watching, fear-sick, while I had been putting a rope around their necks. The uproar from the rear of the courtroom gave Judge Nelson a needed minute or so to collect his thoughts. After he had gotten order restored, he turned to me grim-faced. "'Ambassador Silk, will you please elaborate on the extraordinary statement you have just made?' he invited, as though every word had sharp corners that were sticking in his throat. "'Gladly, Your Honor. My words, too, were gouging and scraping my throat as they came out. I could feel my knees getting absurdly weak, and my mouth tasted as though I had an old copper penny in it. As I understand it, the laws of New Texas do not extend their ordinary protection to persons engaged in the practice of politics. An act of personal injury against a politician is considered criminal only to the extent that the politician injured has not, by his public acts, deserved the degree of severity with which he has been injured and the court of political justice is established for the purpose of determining whether or not there has been such an excess of severity in the treatment meted out by the accused to the injured or deceased politician. This gives rise, of course, to some interesting practices. For instance, what is at law a trial of the accused is, in substance, a trial of his victim. But in any case tried in this court, the accused must be a person who has injured or killed a man who is definable as a practicing politician under the government of New Texas. Speaking for my government, I must deny that these men should have been tried in this court for the murder of Silas Cumshaw. To do otherwise would establish the principle and precedent that our ambassador, or any other ambassador here, is a practicing politician, under—mark that well, Your Honor— under the laws and government of New Texas. This would not only make of any ambassador a permissible target for any marksman who happened to disapprove of the policies of another government, but more serious, it would place the ambassador and his government in a subordinate position relative to the government of New Texas. This the government of the Solar League simply cannot tolerate, for reasons which it would be insulting to the intelligence of this court to enumerate. Mr. Silk? Judge Nelson said gravely, "'This court takes full cognizance of the force of your arguments. However, I'd like to know why you permitted this trial to run to this length before entering this objection. Surely you could have made clear the position of your government at the beginning of this trial.' "'Your Honor,' I said, "'had I done so, these defendants would have been released, and the facts behind their crime would have never come to light.' I grant that the important function of this court is to determine questions of relative guilt and innocence. We must not lose sight, however, of the fact that the primary function of any court is to determine the truth, and only by the processes of the trial of these depraved murderers for hire could the real author of the crime be uncovered. This was important, both for the government of the Solar League and the government of New Texas. 
my government now knows who procured the death of Silas Cumshaw, and we will take appropriate action. The government of New Texas has now had spelled out, in letters anyone can read, the fact that this beautiful planet is in truth a battleground. Awareness of this may save New Texas from being the scene of a larger and more destructive battle. New Texas also knows who are its enemies, and who can be counted upon to stand as its friends. Yes, Mr. Selk, Mr. Vuvuvu, I haven't heard any comment from you. No comment? Well, we'll have to close the court to consider this phase of the question. The black screen slid up for the second time during the trial. There was silence for a moment, and then the room became a bubbling pot of sound. At least six fights broke out among the spectators within three minutes. The rangers and court bailiffs were busy restoring order. Gail Hickok, who had been sitting on the front row of the spectator seats, came running up while I was still receiving the congratulations of my fellow diplomats. "'Stephen, how could you?' she demanded. You know what you've done. You've gotten those murdering snakes turned loose." Andrew Jackson Hickok left the prosecution table and approached. "'Mr. Silk, you've just secured the freedom of three men who murdered one of my best friends.' "'Colonel Hickok, I believe I knew Silas Cumshaw before you did. He was one of my instructors at Dumbarton Oaks, and I have always had the deepest respect and admiration for him. But he taught me one thing, which you seem to have forgotten since you expatriated yourself, that in the diplomatic service personal feelings don't count. The only thing of importance is the advancement of the policies of the Solar League. Silas and I were attachés together at the old embassy at Dramul on Altair II, Colonel Hickok said. What else he might have said was lost in this sudden exclamation as the black screen slid down. In front of Judge Nelson, I saw, there were three pistol belts and three pairs of automatics. "'Switchblade Joe Bonnie, Jack High A Bonnie, Turkey Buzzer Tom Bonnie, together with your counsel, approach the court and hear the verdict,' Judge Nelson said. The three defendants and their lawyer rose. The Bonnies were swaggering and laughing. But for a lawyer whose clients had just emerged from the shadow of the gallows, Sidney was looking remarkably unhappy he probably had imagination enough to see what would be waiting for him outside. "'It pains me inexpressibly,' Judge Nelson said, "'to inform you that this court cannot convict you of the cowardly murder of the learned and honorable old man Silas Cumshaw, nor can you be brought to trial in any other court on New Texas again for that dastardly crime. Here are your weapons, which must be returned to you. Sort them out yourselves, because I won't dirty my fingers on them. And you may regret and feel shame for your despicable act as long as you live, which, I hope, won't be more than a few hours." With that he used the end of his gavel to push the three belts off the bench and onto the floor at the Bonnie's feet. They stood laughing at him for a few moments, then stopped, picked the belts up, drew the pistols to check magazines and chambers, and then began slapping each other's backs and shouting jubilant congratulations at one another. Sidney's two assistants and some of his friends came up and began pumping Sidney's hands. "'There!' Gale flung at me. "'Now look at your masterpiece! 
Why don't you go up and congratulate him, too?' And with that she slapped me across the face. It hurt like the devil. She was a lot stronger than I'd expected. In about two minutes, I told her, you can apologize to me for that, or weep over my corpse. Right now, though, you'd better be getting behind something solid. CHAPTER Eleven. I turned and stepped forward to confront the Bonnies, mentally thanking Gale. Up until she'd slapped me, I'd been weak-kneed and dry-mouthed with what I had to do. Now I was just plain angry, and I found that I was thinking a lot more clearly. Jack Bonney's wounded left shoulder, I knew, wouldn't keep him from using his gun hand, but his shoulder muscles would be stiff enough to slow his draw. I'd intended saving him until I dealt with his brothers. Now I remembered how he'd gotten that wound in the first place. He'd been the one who'd used the auto-rifle, out at the Hickok Ranch. So I changed my plans and moved him up to top priority. "'Hold it!' I yelled at them. "'You've been cleared of killing a politician, but you still have killing a Solar League ambassador to answer for. Now get your hands full of guns, if you don't want to die with them empty!' The crowd of sympathizers and felicitators simply exploded away from the Bonnie brothers. Out of the corner of my eye I saw Sidney and a fat blousy woman with brass-colored hair as they both tried to dive under the friends of the court table at the same place. The Bonnie brothers simply stood and stared at me, for an instant, unbelievingly, as I got my thumbs on the release studs of my belt. Judge Nelson's gavel was hammering, and he was shouting, Court of Political Justice, Confederate Continent of New Texas, is herewith adjourned. Reconvene 0900 tomorrow. Hit the floor! Damn, he means it! Switchblade Joe Bonney exclaimed. Then they all reached for their guns. They were still reaching when I pressed the studs, and the Krupp Tatas popped into my hands, and I swung up my right-hand gun and shot Jack High through the head. After that, I just let my subconscious take over. I saw gun flames jump out at me from the Bonnie's weapons, and I felt my own pistols leap and writhe in my hands, but I don't believe I was aware of hearing the shots, not even from my own weapons. The whole thing probably lasted five seconds, but it seemed like twenty minutes to me. Then there was nobody shooting at me, and nobody for me to shoot at. The big room was silent, and I was aware that Judge Nelson and his eight associates were rising cautiously from behind the bench. I holstered my left-hand gun, removed and replaced the magazine of the right-hand gun, then holstered it and reloaded the other one. Hotty Ringo and Francisco Peros and Commander Stonehenge were on their feet, their pistols drawn, covering the spectators' seats. Colonel Hickok had also drawn a pistol, and he was covering Sidney with it occasionally moving the muzzle to the left to include the Zesroff ambassador and his two attachés. By this time Nelson and the other eight judges were in their seats, trying to look calm and judicial. "'Your Honor,' I said, "'I fully realize that no judge likes to have his court turned into a shooting gallery. I can assure you, however, that my action here was not the result of any lack of respect for this court. It was pure necessity.' Your Honor can see that. 
My government could not permit this crime against its ambassador to pass unpunished. Judge Nelson nodded solemnly. Court was adjourned when this little incident happened, Mr. Silk, he said. He leaned forward and looked to where the three Bonnie brothers were making a mess of blood on the floor. I trust that nobody will construe my unofficial and personal comments here as establishing any legal precedent, and I wouldn't like to see this sort of thing becoming customary, but you did that all by yourself with those little bean-shooters? Not bad, not bad at all, Mr. Silk. I thanked him, then turned to the Zesroff ambassador. I didn't bother putting my remarks into basic. He understood, as well as I did, what I was saying. "'Look, Fido,' I told him, "'my government is quite well aware of the source from which the orders for the murder of my predecessor came. These men I just killed were only the tools. We're going to get the brains behind them, if we have to send every warship we own into the Zesroff star cluster and devastate every planet in it. We don't let dogs snap at us.' and when they do, we don't kick them, we shoot them." That, of course, was not exactly striped pants diplomatic language. I wondered, for a moment, what Norman Gazarian, the protocol man, would think if he heard an ambassador calling another ambassador Fido. But it seemed to be the kind of language that Mr. Vuvuvu understood. He skinned back his upper lip at me and began snarling and growling. Then he turned on his hind paws and padded angrily down the aisle away from the front of the courtroom. The spectators around him and above him began barking, baying, yelping at him, "'Tie a can to his tail! Get for home, Bruno!' Then somebody yelled, "'Hey, look! Even his wristwatch is blushing!' That was perfectly true. Mr. Glaufer Dispatten Vuvuvu's watch face, normally white, was now glowing a bright ruby red. I looked at Stonehenge and found him looking at me. It would be full dark in four or five hours. There ought to be something spectacular to see in the cloudless skies of Capella Four tonight. Fleet Admiral Sir Rodney Tregascus would see to that. From Report of Space Commander Stonehenge to Secretary of Aggression Klung So, the measures considered by yourself and Secretary of State Gopal Singh and Security Coordinator Natalenko, as transmitted to me by Mr. Hadi Ringo, were not, I am glad to say, needed. Ambassador Silk, alive, handled the thing much better than Ambassador Silk, dead, could possibly have. To confirm Sir Rodney Tregaska's report from the tales of the few survivors, the Zesroff attack came as the ambassador had expected. They dropped out of hyperspace about seventy light-minutes outside the Capella system, apparently in complete ignorance of the presence of our fleet. Have learned the entire fleet consisted of about three hundred spaceships, and reports reaching here indicate that no more than twenty got back to Zesroff cluster. Naturally, the whole affair has had a profound influence, an influence to the benefit of the Solar League on all shades of public opinion. As you properly assumed, Mr. Hadi Ringo is no longer with us. When it became apparent that the Palm-Silk Annexation Treaty would be ratified here, Mr. Ringo immediately saw that his status of diplomatic immunity would automatically terminate. 
Accordingly, he left this system, embarking from New Austin for Alderbaran Nine, mentioning, as he shook hands with me, something about a widow. By a curious coincidence, the richest branch bank in the city was held up by a lone bandit about a half an hour before he boarded the spaceship. Final Message of the Last Solar Ambassador to New Texas, Stephen Silk Copies of the Treaty of Annexation duly ratified by the New Texas Legislature herewith. Please note that the guarantees of non-interference in local political institutions are the very minimum which are acceptable to the people of New Texas. They are especially adamant that there be no change in their peculiar methods of ensuring that their elected and appointed public officials shall be responsible to the electorate. Department Addendum After the ratification of the Palm Silk Treaty, Mr. Silk remained on New Texas, married the daughter of a local rancher there, see file on First Ambassador, Colonel Andrew Jackson Hickok, and is still active in politics on that planet often in opposition to Solar League policies, which he seems to anticipate with an almost uncanny prescience. Natalenko re-read the addendum, pursed his thick lips, and sighed. There were so many ways he could be using Mr. Stephen Silk. For example, he looked at the Tri-D star map, both usefully and beautifully decorating his walls. Over there, where Hottie Ringo had gone, near Alderbaran Nine. Those were twin planets, one apparently settled by the equivalent descendants of the Edwards, and the other inhabited by the children of a Jukes Kalakak union. Even the Solar League ambassadors there had taken the viewpoints of the planets to whom they were accredited, instead of the all-embracing view which their training should have given them. Curious problem, and how would Stephen Silk have handled it? The security coordinator scrawled a note comprehensible only to himself. The End of Lone Star Planet by H. Beam Piper and John J. McGuire